If you turn with me to the passage in which uh, today's uh, teaching is based, it comes from Luke chapter 16, and I'll be reading from verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And this is God's word. Now, parables are stories with an ironic twist that shock, they're intended to shock the listener with truths that are just as applicable today as they were back then when they were first told. And from this parable, we're going to learn three things. One, what it means to be a Christian. Two, what hell is like. And three, how do you apply this narrative? One, what does it mean to be a Christian? Two, what hell is like. And lastly, how do you apply uh, this narrative? First, we're going to look at what it means to be a Christian. In verses 19 to 21, that's the beginning of this parable, We're introduced to two characters, and they're very different. One is rich, the other is poor. One is dressed in fine linen, the other is dressed in sores. One is dressed in purple. Purple represents royalty. That means that this person was respected. This person had had a lot of great admirers, and he was surrounded by people, whereas the other one, uh, he was a beggar. That means he was dismissed. He was discarded. Uh, human rights back then is very different than today. We, don't, we have a lot of humanitarian services today for the poor. They didn't have those back then, which means that if you were poor back then, if you were a beggar back then, you were dismissed, you were discarded, you were left for dead. And he was surrounded by dogs. That's what the text says. One of the people lived in, in the lap of luxury, whereas the other, the text in its original language, it says that uh, he was, well, the, the one that was living in the lap of luxury, he was living brilliantly. That word brilliant in, in the original language, it means, it means that he lived boastfully. Whereas the other one, he was laid by the gate. And if he, when you look at the actual language for the word gate, it's a beautiful grand gate. It's the image. Now, if you have a nice gate, 
That means that you have a wonderful estate, a wonderful house. And so this beggar was laid. What an irony. What a juxtaposition. This beggar was laid by this beautiful gate. One side, the person is living boastfully. The other person, he's alone and he's surrounded by dogs. One of the people is living and feasting. If you read the English Standard Version of the Bible, it says that he was, he was feasting sumptuously, whereas the other, he was longing to eat the crumbs from the rich man's, that fell from the rich man's table. In other words, the rich man, he probably, he likely never cared for this beggar. The beggar continued, he was longing to eat what fell from his table. In verse 22, the rich man died. And he was buried, which implies that if you're, if you're dead and buried, that means that you had a funeral. That means that he had friends. There were people gathered around you. But the poor man, there's no reference to a burial for him when he died. The text just says that he died. And in those ancient times, your body was, uh, if you were like the beggar, your body just lay by the wayside and somebody would come and kind of like a trash man would basically come and pick your body up and discard your body into the flames. He was alone. The main point of this contrast between the two people is not that one of them goes to heaven and that the other goes to hell, although they do, and that's the great reversal, that's the great irony, one of the great ironies of this text. But an even greater irony is that the, the real difference is that the poor man had a name. His name was Lazarus. Among the parables, there are 55 parables, at least 55 parables in the Gospels. And more than 30 of them, 31 of them are unique. But in each of these narratives, in each of these parables, the subject of the parable never had a name. Uh, last week, if you were here, we looked at uh, the parable of the prodigal son. You had a father. You had two sons. You had hired hands. You had servants. None of them had a name. And that's very typical of these parables, except in this one. This is the only parable of all the parables that Jesus told where the subject has a name. And this is the irony of their narrative. Because the one who has a name is Lazarus the beggar. Lazarus means one who has been helped by God. In other words, God is my helper. God is my savior. In other words, God is, for, for Lazarus, God is all that this man had. In verses 22 to 23, when Lazarus died, uh, no one was present. He was alone. But God lavished on Lazarus angels who carried him to Abraham's side. He was literally helped by God. However, the rich man, he had a funeral uh, he, he had, uh, he, he, everyone was present. He was buried, but he's in hell, in the flames, in the fire, in torment. In, in Lazarus's earthy life, when he died, likely his body was carried to the flames. And now you have the rich man. After he dies, his body is in the flames. An amazing reversal. In verse 25, from heaven, you have Abraham who says to the rich man, in your lifetime, you received your good things. In other words, you invested all right. You boasted heavily. 
You invested and you boasted heavily in worldly comfort, in worldly wealth, in your reputation, because if you have worldly comfort and worldly wealth, you're going to have a decent reputation. People are going to want to be around you. And yet you wasted your life because that was your help. You received your good things back then. But Lazarus is poor. Lazarus is naked. Lazarus is, is hungry all the time. And he was discarded. He was forgotten. But he had a name. Jesus knew him. God knew him. Because Jesus is saying God, his name literally is God, is his only help. And so God was, his, was the sum of his worth. God was the only good thing that Lazarus had in his life. It was all he had. What were the good things for the rich man? He defined himself by his wealth. Oh, he had nice clothes. He ate at the best places. Well, if you were to contextualize that today, he had fine food, fine clothes, and thus had a wonderful name. He had a wonderful reputation on earth. That was all he had. That was all he had. It was all he thought he needed. So he never saw a need to have a real relationship with God. He never saw a need to appeal to God. He never felt the need to go to God for help because most of us, if we're honest, we go to God for things. We go to God when we need help with things, when we want things, when we're pursuing things. And so this man, because he had no needs, he never went to God. He didn't have a need for God. And so he didn't know God. And so he wasn't known by God. And so he had no name. And once he died, that wealth, everything he had, immediately gone. And so because the wealth was gone, now he's in ultimate aloneness. Because how he defined himself was gone. His wealth. Now he's bankrupt. Spiritually bankrupt. Now he's experiencing the deepest thirst, the deepest need. In other words, when you make your wealth, when you make your riches, your identity, or anything apart from God for that matter, anything apart from your relationship with Jesus, that's all you are. That's all you are. And that means you don't have a real identity. You're just a rich man. You don't have a name. You're just a pretty person. You're just a good-looking person. You're just an intelligent person. You're just a person who has a good job. And when you take away those things, you're just an empty soul. Some of us are feeling that now. You're experiencing that now. Those things that become the sum of our worth, those are the things that we invest our time and wealth, our thoughts, our preoccupations on. And the reason why we do it is because those things are our help. Those things are our savior. Those things are functional gods. And when you lose those things, now you're lost. You feel empty and you're in torment. It's like you're in hell. There's a soulful thirst to be known, to be loved, to be seen, to matter. What is a name? What is in a name? It's to have a name, to have an identity. It's to know who you are. It's to know that you have worth. It's to know that you have value in your life. What's this text say? That if you build your life on, on a relationship with God as your foundation, 
then even if you experience loss of anything in the world, and if you experience the loss of anything, you will still have a you. You will still have an identity. You will still have a self. Circumstances may affect you, but they won't define you. They won't define who you are. They won't define your, your sense of worth, your value. Lazarus is an amazing example. He had a relationship with God, and so he had a name. He had an identity. He was one who was helped by God. He didn't have friends. He didn't have a family. He wasn't popular. No one threw a party for him. He didn't even have a burial because he was dismissed. He was discarded. He was discarded because he had no worth on earth. He had no wealth, nothing to his name, no career path. He had no title. No one was going to promote him or even give him a job. He didn't, have, he didn't have crumbs for food. He was always hungry. Dogs were licking his sores. Dogs were considered unclean in that sense. That means likely this person was beaten and laid by the gate. Or maybe he was ill and thus laid by the gate. Or maybe he was crippled. Regardless, he was alone. And he went through death. Death is the most drastic of changes. But through that death, through that weakness and poverty and death, he was birthed into a new self. The rich man, notice the text doesn't say anything really about his moral or religious character. We're kind of left guessing. You think he might have been religious. He knew Abraham, right? So you think he might have been religious. You don't know if he was a good or bad person. There's some clues Right, Because he had a beggar here longing to eat from his table, and yet he didn't feed him deliberately. No intention there. So there are some clues. But in, in actuality, you don't really know about his character. You don't really know about his morality. What you know is that he was personally not known by God. He was just an empty soul, an empty soul covered in the fat of his wealth. And those things earned him a sense of worth. What does that tell you about the gospel? Christianity is not about how well you obey. Because it's not, it does, we don't know how well he obeyed. Christianity is not about how well you lived your life. We don't know how well he lived his life. It's more about who you look to as your help, regardless of your wealth, regardless of your history, regardless of your merits, regardless of your record. It's about who you look to, what you look to, as your savior, what you look to apart from God to save you. Because anything that we look to apart from God, we're looking to to increase our options, potential, freedom, and joy. That is what we place our identity in. So to be a Christian is to have a name, an identity in God. God defines your sense of worth. To be known by God is to have all that you need. Now, I want to be clear here. What sent Lazarus to heaven was not his earthly poverty. What sent Lazarus to heaven was not his earthly poverty, was not because he was poor. Lazarus went to heaven. Though he may experience earthly poverty, he went to heaven because he was rich in his relationship with God. Lazarus became even greater 
after he died because God was the source of his identity. And so God defined his options and potential and freedom and joy. And so when eternity overwhelmed Lazarus, the fullness of that identity in God burst him into heaven. Heaven is the ultimate option, potential, freedom, and joy. Regardless of the poverty that he experienced on earth, regardless of his reputation on earth, the rich man, when eternity overwhelmed him, when eternity overtook him, the extent of his soulful emptiness exploded him into a soulful bankruptcy. And so he lost everything, including his name. He was just a rich man. That's what it means to be a Christian. Then what is hell? What is hell like? In verse 23, hell is torment, we see. The rich man looks up and he sees he's in torment. Now, some of you, there are people in this room who believe in hell. In our day, many people don't believe in hell. But the passage says two remarkable things about hell. And by the way, Jesus talks a lot about hell in the Gospels. One of the first things you see is in verse 24, hell is likened to a fire. Why is fire so often used to describe hell? And it's because when something is in flames, uh, when it burns up, it degrades, but it actually doesn't cease to exist. It's still there. Fire has a way of breaking down things to a degree that the bonds that intricately held, intricately held them together are now breaking apart. They're loose and they break apart so that where there was once cohesion and integration, now there is incoherence and disintegration. The Bible teaches us that that's what sin is. That's what it does. Sin disintegrates the entire person. Your body, your emotions, your psyche, your soul. Think about this. No matter how much you try to distance yourself from God right now while we're all alive, I mean, you may be incredibly rebellious in life, you may, you know, not, not go to church, not, not read the Bible, not care. You're just, you're just going the opposite direction. You're on a different path in life. No matter how much you try to do that, you're never completely away from God because God is always present. So you will still be intact to a degree as long as you are still alive. Your body and your soul, they're still integrated. That's the extent of God's patience. That's the extent of his grace, even to those who choose not to believe it, who don't know him. So you're still able to love and experience love to some degree. You're still able to think and rationalize and reason. You're still able to create and enjoy life to some degree. But the Bible says that someday if you continue to be distant, you will completely actually get away. Hell is that place where after you're dead, where people who wanted to actually get away from God and live apart from God actually get away from God and live apart from him. God won't be present. You've been wanting to get away from God all your life, and now you actually get what you want. The breakdown that began in your life is now finally complete. That disintegrating work that began here, that begins here because of our sin, through our sin, it has now birthed itself, come full term. Now think about this. You go to a doctor. If you're my age, you go to a doctor at least once a year, right? You get your physical, and the doctor says this, look, you need to stop eating this. You need to stop eating that. You need to exercise more. You need more cardio in your life because if you don't do cardio, if you don't do exercise more, right, if you don't exercise more, if you don't stop eating this and don't stop eating that, 
There will be a catastrophic disaster in your life, and you will die. How many people hear that from their doctor and say, who are you to tell me how to live my life? What authority do you have to tell me how to live my life? No, we never say that. Why? Because we trust that the doctor is an authority. We trust that he's an expert. He knows. He knows your makeup. He knows your design. He knows how you were created to function. He knows how you were created to live. And he knows that if you violate that design, that something catastrophic will happen. So if you violate his recommendations, that disintegration that began through you living the way that you want on your terms eventually will come full term and you will die. That disintegration will now burst you into a greater disintegration death. Now listen, the more self-centered you are, the more proud you are, your life will continue to break down. That disintegration is already happening. It gets harder to love when you're self-centered. It gets harder to think for other people when you're proud and self-centered. And after a while, everything starts to revolve around you. And everything has to happen on your terms. Think about what self-righteousness does. A lot of us here, we grew up in a church. We lived a good life. It's almost like we're building a spiritual bank, a spiritual uh, wealth in some sort of spiritual bank, as if your goodness affords you rights, as if your goodness affords your respect. So when you are overlooked, when that goodness is overlooked, you get offended. Why? Because you are entitled. You have rights. This is a start of a disintegrating jealousy in your life. This is a start of an a disintegrating anger in your life. This is a start of a disintegrating snobbiness in your life. This is a start of a disintegrating defensiveness, excuse-making, gossip in your life. That's hell. That's hell before it goes full term. It's the beginning of the breakdown. Why? Because what's hell? Hell's a place where your self-centeredness and your pride just is uncontrollable. It's like a wildfire. It completely consumes you. You may be blind to that selfishness today. Trust me, there are people in your life that see it and know. They're just too afraid to say it. And I pray that God would give them the courage to tell you, you need it. It's a matter of life and death. Because in time, what happens is that disintegration starts to snowball, and then you get trapped in it. In this text, there are three things about what the rich man says while he's in torment. Very interesting. One, and it's while he's in hell. It tells you everything you need to know about hell. One, the rich man says to Abraham, verse 24, he says, send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and to cool my tongue because I am in agony. What he's saying is what? I'm disintegrating. What the rich man man is asking for is, is a job for a servant. So what he's, look, he's looking at Abraham like Abraham is a servant. And, and Lazarus is even lower servant because he's telling Abraham to send Lazarus to help him, to comfort him. This guy's in hell, and that's the rich man's view of Abraham and Lazarus. He's still thinking that way. Why? Because when he was alive, the rich man used to be on top, and Lazarus used to be at the bottom. But now he still thinks he's on top. 
That entitlement has now full term. That self-righteousness is full term. That I have rights is full term. That I should be seen and known is full term. You see that? When you're on top, man, you get to bark orders. You get to command people. You have authority in your life. You have power. This man is a foolish man because he doesn't recognize that there's a reversal in his life. It's the ultimate reversal. And so he's ordering Abraham and Lazarus as if he is still on top. He's blind to his need because he still defines himself as a rich man with earthly power and earthly status. We say, I have gifts, and we define ourselves with those gifts. Oh, those, it's, those, it's those little complaints. It's those little grumbles. It's those, it's those little jealousies that as they take root and they start to materialize, manifest into such bigger things in our lives, what the Bible's saying here is that at one point it becomes uncontrollable and it becomes a living hell for you here until it bursts you into a more real hell later. The second thing the rich man says is in verse 27, he says, send Lazarus to warn my brothers. You know, I've got five brothers. They deserve a proper warning. What he's implying here is what? I lived a good life, but I didn't get that proper warning. He's still blaming other people. He's still making excuses. He's still justifying himself, even in hell. And so what he's saying, he's almost trying to sound noble in hell. The third thing, and I find this to be the most, I mean, no pun intended, the most damning, right, is that he asks Lazarus to, to come and comfort him, yes, but he never asks for forgiveness. We have a lot of people here who may admit and say, you know, I get it, you know, I'm, I'm sinful, I've got some flaws here, I've got some weaknesses, oh, but it's painful. It's like you're in hell to admit that. It's hell to admit that there is this tumor that's growing in you and, and people see it, it start, the lump is starting to show. And people see it and they're telling you, you gotta work, you gotta, you gotta do something about this. And it's so painful to admit that when it would be so much more freeing to treat it and excise it. This person never asks for help, never asks for forgiveness. He wants comfort and relief, but he's not asking for rescue. He doesn't see the real problem. <clears throat> I'm convinced that the thing that plagues the church today, Christians in the church today the most, you know, is not all those influences out there so much as it is that nagging lie that we oftentimes believe that we're not that bad. We don't believe we're that bad. This person never sees his real problem because he's a good person. He made a lot of money. He probably helped some people. I don't know. He probably did some stuff there, right? He did something with his money. He had tons of parties. People loved him. People admired him. How could he 
not deserve God's love. I mean, that's what we often say to ourselves. He doesn't ask for help. He always believes he's on top. He doesn't see the real problem. And because he doesn't see the real problem, he doesn't see the real solution. He just wants comfort. He just wants relief. And this tells you something about hell. Hell is nothing more than what you naturally pursue, than what you naturally want, what you naturally ask for. You choose it. We choose hell. And that teaches us two things. One, look at our pride. Look at your jealousy for that matter. You never naturally get better. We oftentimes in the church confuse just emotional growth. You know, from five to six, six to 10, 10 year old to 15, and we're like, wow, he's really spiritually growing, when in reality, he's just emotionally growing. Everybody goes through that. You grow. You don't watch Sesame Street all your life. You know, you start, you graduate into other things. And in the same way, your reason improves. That's not necessarily a spiritual maturity. That's just becoming 15 to 20. And yet we are so quick to just assume that because we're thinking better, we're thinking wiser, that we're becoming godlier and that we're maturing spiritually. Hell is nothing more than what you naturally want, what you naturally ask for. So you don't ever naturally get better. We just assume, I'll tell you, this is big. In a lot of traditional societies, traditional cultures, Asian cultures, you know what we do? We're like, this person has a problem. But who's going to tell this person that they have a problem? I mean, they've been in the church for a real long time. That person's a leader. I mean, I, you know, we'll just, you know, we've got to respect him. And, you know, he, it's a saving face kind of a culture. So we don't want to creep into that. I don't want to offend the guy because then he might leave and, you know, stuff like that. So what we do is we just kind of let him go. And that is the worst thing that you could do in the church because they don't naturally get better. We just assume, well, you just give them some time, God's working, it's gonna work, it's gonna work out. Friends, we are, if you're listening to what I'm saying, we are spiritually disintegrating. We are being consumed right now, until one day, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, it bursts you into the ultimate disintegration and isolation. That's all, and we're gonna get to the isolation part in a second, right? You don't naturally get better. You don't mature out. Over the years, you actually get worse until, CS Lewis, until we get to what C.S. Lewis says. It bursts you into eternity where you become exactly what you envision hell to be. In other words, hell begins with a dismissal of sin. And then it leads to an entitlement, rights, grumbling, irritations, jealousies, gossip. But eventually you can't stop. You're always complaining. You're always blaming other people. You're always, uh, you're even self-critical. You're beating yourself up. C.S. Lewis says that eventually you become the grumble. That's hell. That's why hell is a fire. It consumes you. And I bet that you can see the disintegration already happening in your life today. The second thing we learn about hell is its isolation. Verse 24, the rich man is in agony. He's begging for relief. And you see... Uh, Abraham and Lazarus. And Abraham says in verse 25 to 26, I can't help you. Why? Because there's a chasm. There's a gap. It's too distant, too far. What is he saying? The more self-centered that you become, the more self-absorbed you will become. 
the more self-righteous you will become, the more self-pitying you will be, the more blaming other people you will be. Eventually, you're going to have no one left around you. Eventually, you're going to lose everyone around you. Until one day, what is death? The ultimate losing of everyone around you. You will be absolutely alone. That's hell. Now, growing up, I used to think that hell was this, like, huge, like, pit, this oven. You know, you see this in, like, cartoons and stuff like that, right? And you, you know, some guy, like, punches in some code and, like, the thing opens up. It's always, like, this, like, medieval thing and... And then one by one, we just throw people in there, and everyone's like, ah! And then they like hold on, and like he stomps you, and he's like, <laughs> right? That's what we think, right? And then, ah! right? And and then you know, you know, you just kind of look down there, and oh, you know, I believe in Jesus, <laughs> you know. Um, that's uh, that's not what it is, because hell is something you choose. No one asks, get me out of this. No one asks, I'm a problem. I need help. No one's even trying to get out because they chose it. You actually get what you want. You actually get to be apart from God. You're choosing it now. You're choosing it with your pride. You're choosing it um, you know, with your self-righteousness. You, you're hearing warnings, but you're ignoring the warnings because you're choosing to ignore the warnings. Lazarus on earth, he had no options. He had no potential, no freedom, probably a joyless earthly life in a sense from a worldly standpoint, and then he died. But through that brokenness, through that death, because he was known by God, that was his joy. He had the ultimate options and potential and freedom and joy. How do we apply that narrative in our lives? In verses 27 to 28, the, the rich man says, I know what it takes to avoid this. Send Lazarus. Because if Lazarus shows up, my brothers, they'll get it. In verses 29 to 31, Abraham says, that's not going to work. Why? Because if you live a life using fear tactics or guilt tactics to shape somebody, they might change temporarily, but it won't last. But the rich man says, but, but if somebody comes from the dead, they'll get it, right? And Jesus says, no, they won't get it. Not even if someone rises from the dead. They might get scared for a little bit, but they won't change. They won't be transformed. Not even if someone rises from the dead. The Greek word for rising from the dead in the Gospels always refers to Jesus and his own resurrection, which means Jesus is saying, okay, so here's what's going on. The rich man is saying, but if someone comes from the dead, they'll get it, right? And Jesus responds. Abraham is saying, no, not even if Jesus rises from the dead and you see his hands and you see his feet, that won't work either. It might scare you, but it won't change you because you have to know why he came. You have to know why he died. You have to know why he rose again in order to experience the life-changing grace that has the power to change and shape your identity. Only the love of God can change your identity. Think about this. 
Why do we build our identity on our wealth and on our work, on our families, on our relationships? It's because deep inside, we need something. We all need someone on the outside telling us, validating you. You can't validate yourself. We need somebody on the outside telling you you are okay. You need somebody on the outside telling you that you are beautiful, that you are acceptable. That's why we're so desperate for approval. There are people in the church here right now. The reason why you serve is not so much out of a response, gratitude to the gospel. You're actually serving because if I can get approval, then I will feel okay. It's not complicated. You just have to know yourself. It's why we're so desperate for love and intimacy with other people. We have replaced the love of God for the respect of other people. We have replaced the love of God for the intimacy of other people, the admiration of other people, because those things justify us. By the way, now there are people in this room that says, nah, not me. I don't really care what people think about me, and you are, there's nothing further from the truth. You care. Trust me, you care. I'll t- you are lying, and I'll tell you why. Why do you work so hard? Why do you stay so late in the office? Why do you feel like you have to get this done? No self-respecting author will say, I don't care what people think about my writing. Not if he wants to sell books. No self-respecting songwriter will say, I don't care what people think about my songs as long as I like them. No self-respecting person will say, I don't care what people think about my looks because I think I'm beautiful. You cannot validate yourself. It doesn't work. I mean, you can do it. It just doesn't work is what I'm saying. We all need somebody on the outside telling you you are beautiful. That's why we're so desperate for the love of other people. That's why we're so desperate for the approval of other people. By the way, that's why we place so much value on what we do. It's why we place so much value on who we date. We're placing eternal weight on things that were not intended to hold that weight. We're placing eternal weight on blessings given by God that were never meant to be your identity, that were never meant to make up your name. And your willpower might change you for a little bit. Your fears might change you for a little bit. Your guilt may temporarily change you, but they will never truly change you We think, well, I'm going to speak to this person and I'm just going to tell them the truth. The truth won't even, you need something more than truth. You need truth, not anything less than truth. You need more than truth. You need more than something that goes beyond your abilities, beyond your fears, that are going to melt you into change. Only the love of God can do that. Only the love of God can rescue you from your self-centeredness and your pride to turn you from yourself and toward God and toward other people. Only a righteousness that comes from God can save your soul in a way that your soul can burst yourself, crescendo into eternity without disintegration and without isolation. Jesus is saying here, you need my love. You need to know my grace. You want to know my love? Then you need to know what I did for you. You need to know why I did it for you. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. You know what Moses and the prophets say? The prophets tell you what Jesus would do on the cross. What did Jesus do on the cross? He took on all of our hells. On the cross, what do you see? Jesus Christ experiencing the ultimate disintegration, the ultimate isolation. 
He's experiencing the disintegrating power of God's wrath, and he's crying out for relief, and he's saying what? I'm longing, I thirst. You know why? Because he's getting the fire. He's getting the consuming wrath of the fire of God's wrath as a penalty for our sins, and so his body is being torn apart. I mean, he is disintegrating. Joints are out of whack, and there he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying here is, now I am experiencing the ultimate disintegration and the ultimate isolation. What is that? Separation from God. God has forsaken me. He and God were one. They were integrated, and now they are disintegrated, forensically torn apart. He's lost God's presence. Now a great chasm has existed between God and his God the Father and his Son. What is hell? Hell is complete separation from God. What that means is that Jesus Christ on the cross was experiencing, was going through all of our hells, multiplied over and over and over again. Second Corinthians chapter eight. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. What that means is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate rich man who gave up his wealth, gave up his status, gave up his reputation, gave up his body, gave up his soul, and he became the ultimate Lazarus. He was poor, he was stripped naked, he was longing and hungering and thirsting for you, for God, for you, He was forgotten, left for dead, discarded, and dismissed. And yet he was reciting from Psalm chapter 22, which is probably one of the most prophetic psalms about Jesus in the Old Testament. And what he says there is, my tears have been my food. What he's saying is, I'm longing. I'm longing. I'm hungering. I'm longing to eat. He says, dogs have encircled me. They're ready to lick his sores covered in sores. God, as the center of his life, he wasn't on the cross. He didn't go through hell because he deserved it. He went through hell because he chose it as well. But he chose it so that he could take our place. And so he lost his identity so we could have his identity. We all need somebody on the outside telling us that we're okay. Through Jesus, we have the ultimate somebody. We have the creator of the universe. We have the king of the universe telling you that you are acceptable, that you are okay. You are a mess. Functionally, you are a mess but your status is one of sons. You are beautiful, he says. You are accepted. You are embraced. And so Jesus Christ chose all of our hells. Look at the beauty of Jesus. Look at the beauty of a broken Jesus. Look at the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus, the endurance of Jesus, the resilience of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus. Unless you know the depths of his suffering for you, you will, know, you will have no idea what you're worth. But if you do, if you believe that truth, that truth will justify you. You don't have to justify yourself. You're justified. 
You have Jesus on the cross, the king of the universe, sacrificing everything that he has to say that you are worth it. And I will go through millions of hells for you so that you could have his righteousness. You could have his name. You are dressed in his righteousness. By his wounds then, our sores are healed. We have a seat at the feast. No more longing. See that? We are dressed and hidden in the righteousness of Jesus. We are rich in him forever. I'm going to end this just with the basic question. How do you respond to that? How will that shape the way you live? How will that shape what you pursue? Or the reasons why you pursue wealth? Or a reputation? Or your status? Your pedigree? The reasons why you cling to these things? Trust and hide yourself in the righteousness of Christ afforded to you on the cross. The beauty of Christ. Let's pray.